You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. Good to be back, Owen. We have a very special guest with us today, Pat Wright from the ABC. Pat, how are you doing? Really good. How are you guys going? Very good, mate. Very good. Yeah, we're stoked to have you in recording with us. We're here in Melbourne um, at our usual haunt, which is Flinders Lane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And today we're talking about deciphering the financial news. And who better to be our field guide than yourself? We've got a heap of questions here about how we can make better decisions in terms of getting information into our consciousness, how we make decisions based on that information, how we verify it, et cetera. Let's start with a bit about you. Tell us a bit about yourself, what you do day to day and why you do it. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan. So I guess a bit about me. So I'm living in Geelong now. I spend a lot of time living in Melbourne. And I've been a journalist for about nine years now. So I started with the ABC in 2012. And that was towards the end of my, I just was in the third year of my uni course, journalism. And I was doing an internship at the ABC. And luckily enough, there was some casual work going and then I got a casual job there. Um, That was just in the kind of national newsrooms, doing a lot of national, international news. And since then, I've had a few different jobs. I worked in Brisbane for a few years, then I moved down to Melbourne I was working in international news for a little bit and I was doing some kind of state-based reporting um, and producing um, for online news at the ABC. And most recently, I've been working at ABC Every Day. And so we're really aiming at talking about lifestyle topics to 
an audience under 45. So we do stuff about personal finances, about careers. We also do things about food, travel, and things like that. And it's a really interesting job because I guess I get to do a lot of different types of stories. Mm -hmm. I do a lot about money, but that's not the only kind of thing I get to do, which is good. So. Yeah, I don't think I've read any of you. I've, I think I've only read your finance stories. I don't think I've read your food articles. Yeah, well, I wrote one about apples recently. So, okay, um, I'll have to yeah, check it out. But it's good just to have a bit of variety, I think. Mm. Um, you know, I'm kind of curious about a lot of things and like to learn new things, speak to interesting people. So it's good for me to have a bit of variety in my job. How many days of the week do you, would you say are spent on finance or money-related topics versus everything else? Probably most of it because... The way we are as a team, some people specialize in certain different things. And so for me, often if there is like a finance story, um, you know, that just either I've pitched it or I'll get asked to write about that. So, um, and that's obviously, I'm really interested in finance. Mm. So, um, and that wasn't something for me that I came across kind of from a personal interest. Like it was never like, I never set out necessarily to become like a financial journalist or it's. I kind of started out as a journalist, then I got interested in my own finances when I started having some money for the first time for my full-time job. And, you know, I learned a lot along the way about like, you know, started doing some investing for myself. I was thinking about, you know, um, saving, thinking about, you know, what do I do with my super, all those kind of things that we go through. And I'm probably a bit more focused on those kind of things than the average person. My partner would tell you, like, I spend too much time (laughs) thinking about financial things. But I also feel kind of really passionate about kind of helping people get on top of some of those basic things. And a lot of people find, I guess, money something that is confronting or they feel maybe they switch off when you know, there's conversations about money or debt or, you know, what incomes and things like this. And I think the more people we can empower people to get on top or understand what's going on with their money and have some choices and, and make some decisions, I think that's a really good thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, it's good to know that our finance journalists at the ABC have that approach and are really caring about consumers and their their relationship with money. And I know you said you're usually on the other side of the microphone asking the questions, not answering them. So hopefully um, we don't ask you anything too hard today. So the, I think I wanted to start with when you're researching and writing a financial news story or something, maybe explaining people about credit card debt or things, how do you remain impartial and really get to the crux of different each side of the story because there's so many competing views in the finance industry and really sort of cut to the core of the matter and provide people with the best information? I think that's a really great question, Kate. And there's a few things we do. And I guess that's something for me as well that I've I spend a lot of time thinking about when I'm writing stuff is like, how am I making sure I'm getting all, all different perspectives? And for me, it starts with asking questions. So I think one of the traps that can sometimes happen is that people might have an idea about a story and then kind of find people to prosecute that story. It's almost like finding the actors from central casting that fit this preconceived idea you have. But for me, I think it's really one of the things I really do is I start with questions. And so if we're thinking about credit card debt, it might be like, what does credit card debt look like? Who are the people this is affecting? What are some different circumstances? You know, is it, and what maybe some people from different backgrounds as well. Maybe there's a lot of people who might be on high incomes but also struggle with credit card debt. There might be a very different story if you talk to, 
you know, the financial counsellors about some of the issues their clients face. So I guess I start with those questions, try to kind of talk to a lot of different people with different perspectives. And I guess the other thing we're doing is, you know, I have an editor as well. So I think that's something a lot of people might not understand about journalism is that usually is a team effort um, when you see a story online and particularly at the ABC, like I have some really good editors. And so they often act as kind of like a second layer of, you know, checking that stuff because they, they might not uh, have, they might have different views to me or might not have the same level of understanding of some concepts and things like that. So they can be a good foil and um, point out any things I might be missing as well. And the last thing I'd say is at the ABC, one of the good, the great things about working at the ABC is that we have a really rigorous approach to things like impartiality around editorial policies and things, things like this. So all of it's published online as well. So you can look at it up yourself about the kind of things we have to do as journalists. Um, but that's also like a really, for, for us at the ABC, we're re- it's really clear about what we need to do and um, what the expectations are around that stuff. And also it's really rigorous. And I think that's why if you look at the kind of trust surveys, like the ABC is like the most trusted news service in Australia. And that's because I think pe- people really do kind of see that kind of level of um, attention to detail and that, that kind of work that we do. I think when it comes to important things like national security, even, you know, uh, like health and well-being, which obviously you do a lot of, and then things like political news, I just almost always default to ABC over any other outlet. I've got to be honest. I'm not just talking your book here. <laughs> uh, it's something that, you know, I just see it as a trusted source. I've got to be one of those people in that that population. So we've got some questions here around, in particular, how do you kind of go about your day deciphering the news? And the first one we've got is a bit of fact or fiction. How can someone, you know, determine what is fact and what is fiction? Um, because, you know, especially now we talked about it off air, it's just... It's an attention-grabbing economy now. Attention spans are shorter. What are some of the steps that you might take or tell other people to take to make sure they're getting the right information? Another really great question. I think there's a few things to this. The first thing I would say is, yes, like headlines are designed to capture people's attention. And I would, if I was to kind of defend that, I would say that we're kind of, it's a very competitive market in online news. People are trying, you might write a really good, I might write a really good story and I really want people to read it. And for me, I don't want a headline that's misleading or that's kind of clickbaity or, it's, you know, doesn't deliver on what it promises. But I'm really thinking really hard about like, what's the best way to get people to read the story because I've spent a lot of time working on it. So yeah, I think that's one thing to know. And so I guess something to think about there is read the articles as well. Oftentimes, journalists we get a lot of criticism people don't read the stories um they might just read a headline or or something like that so the other thing i think is really important to read widely and different sources and different you know if we're talking about people who are interested in finance or investing you might read some of the australian uh, news websites you might look at also things overseas to get different perspectives or you might listen to podcasts you might listen to people on youtube and i guess the more I guess the greater variety of sources that can be a really good thing for triangulation or if there's diff- to get different perspectives on things. And I guess as a, if I put on my like news consumer hat um, here and try to think of it from that perspective, one thing I'm I'm often thinking about when I'm reading stories, particularly in financial 
media is like, what's the business model? Like, what's the business model of this publication? And we see in Australia, you know, some websites might be, you know, they might kind of appear to be doing educational content around, you know, financial topics and things like this. I'm thinking about some commercial comparison sites. They do mm. um, stories about credit card debt or refinancing your mortgage. But then if you look at the bottom of the article, it might be a link to their services or something that they get some affiliate marketing from. And, you know, I think that's just something to be cautious about, I guess, if, if you're around this, this kind of stuff. And one thing is like, you know, there's that old saying, if, you, if it's not clear what the product is, like you might be the product. And, <laughs> and that's like really true, I think, um, in some of these spaces as well. Mm. Mm. And I, I know so often, especially because I do follow the ABC on Facebook, people don't even read the article. They just read the headline and make some uh, insane comments about what they think the article is probably about. So it must be quite challenging. I, this is just sort of throwing this out of left field, but how do you deal with sort of that feedback from consumers because you're doing everything online and it just comes so quickly. Do you just not read the Facebook comments? Well, depends what it is. Like I, I try to engage in, in uh, if there's criticism and it's in good faith. Mm. Like I think, of course, you want to respond to it. And sometimes it might be, you know, sometimes I've had people contact me and they've had, you know, pointed out something I've missed or yeah. they might have a really good point. But a lot of it, unfortunately, particularly on social media, and if, I, if I'm being completely honest, like, and there's a lot of research about this, it's like predominantly women journalists who are targeted. Mm. Um, we, we, if you look at some of my colleagues, particularly at the ABC, have had some really horrendous trolling and things like this. And so, yeah, um, I think there's a bit of, at the moment um, for some people, they're really taking a break from social media or, or opting out of it because of that it can be really toxic and it does really affect people's mental health and things like that. Luckily, in the space I work in, and I would say also because I'm a man as well, I don't get some of those kind of comments. But, you know, at the same time, like, definitely is a really big issue for people in the media as well. And, like, I'm, I'm not trying to say here that people in the media shouldn't be criticised. I think there is totally, um, we have a privilege, right, because we're publishing things, we're putting things in, in, in the, out into in public um, or on social media and we have a platform. And so we need to be able to, I think it's completely reasonable that people are criticised, but also when things are like really personal or talking about people's appearances or, you know, um, talking about their personal lives, which is a lot, happens quite a bit. I think that's crossing the line there. And like I say, like if it's something's in good faith, I'll engage. But if it's not, I'm not going to waste my time responding to people. So, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I just, I, I know sometimes we get feedback and it's just, it's always interesting. Some of it is like great and it's really helpful and it might, as you mentioned, pick up a different point, but there's always, sometimes you get comments that just have no basis or they're, yeah. or they're attacking something about you, not actually the content. So I, I mm. always wonder how journalists deal with that because it's, it seems like your, your face is at right out there and people can contact you directly through Twitter and Facebook and all these things, which is a bit scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, I know you mentioned it before, but when we're reading financial content online and we're maybe assuming that most content everybody has some sort of bias or maybe they prefer property over shares or they uh, work for a different company. How can we read this information but still sort of work out if they do have a bias or a bent to a particular area of finance or what their, work out what their incentives are? That's a really good question. I think 
if it goes, if we go back to kind of what I was saying before, often I'll think about, you know, the business model of the, um, you know, the publication when I'm reading something, I'm thinking like, how do they make money? And you know, how does this influence what they might commission or who they might feature on that platform? But also, like personally, as a journalist, I'm often thinking when I kind of, the people I interview, like, what are they, like, what perspectives are they going to bring? And it's not like you can kind of remove all bias from stories because like if you're talking about the example you used about some people might prefer property investment as other people might prefer investment in the share market i think what you do as a journalist is to try to find both of those perspectives or it might not even be in the same article but it might be one of the things we do at the abc is is we talk about doing balance over the time so if we kind of have a story that might talk about one perspective then maybe in a different story We'll do one, you know, taking a different view or looking at a different, you know, approach. And I guess the other thing is we can't get everything in, a, in, a, in an 800-word article or a 1,000 words. So there are going to be things that, um, you know, don't get into the, the articles or the content. But, yeah, I do, I do think, like, some of it is pretty, you know, it's just about common sense. So if you're talking about, like, a mortgage broker who's talking about refinancing homes, someone who's business is to you know they get paid on commissions usually to of course they're going to be telling people to refinance their home and that's something you know doesn't mean it's necessarily a bad advice it's just that it's like the barber telling you you know you need a haircut it's like (laughs) you kind of discount that a little bit and you might think about someone who might not have skin in the game who you know might you know they might offer a different perspective yeah, I think that's the that's the key, right? It's just I always, it's particularly with new publications, the first thing I do almost always is go to the footer to find out you know, what is this organisation, who is it, where are they from, um, why are they writing this? And investing Charlie Munger's quotes, just tell me where I'm going to die and I won't go there. And I use that all the time because it's so powerful. The incentive is I don't want to die, so I just won't go where I know I'm going to die. Um, and it's the same thing with you know, any type of incentive. If you just follow those, I think you find out a lot about the source of the information. Mm. Okay, so you have a particular bent towards finance and money. I know because we've, we've crossed paths a few times. What are some of the, well, I guess, have you seen any financial scams play out in your time at the ABC or do you just have any, I guess, general stories or things that consumers need to be mindful of um, that you've seen play out again and again. I can tell you one story, which is something we published a piece about this recently, and I, we were looking at some stories around cryptocurrency. And obviously, if you look at once you start looking into people who are starting out in crypto, there's a lot of stories about people being scammed in various ways. And I don't think it's like the scams aren't even really about crypto. They're not about like it's not like about Bitcoin being a scam. It's about you know, they're used as kind of medium for like old-fashioned scams. So, yeah. um, and in a way, the same scams that have been around for hundreds of years are still happening. They've just got a different, mm. like, like, you know, sl- slightly different modification for like modern times. So, yeah, the story I did recently was about a guy who found someone on Instagram. Basically, it was an account that was posting all these, uh, you know, posts about, these crazy gains they were making from a Bitcoin mining operation and they were promising returns of 50% a month, oh, right? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the guy 
probably didn't have that much financial literacy. Um, I guess, you know, as you guys probably know, that's kind of mathematically impossible to return mm. 50% a month. You'd quickly become the richest person in the, in the world. But at the same time, like he, you know, thought it was a, a, a really good thing. And when he, he tried it with small amounts of money, so I think he started off with like 100 bucks or something and he got back 150 bucks. Then he was like, this works, put some more money into it. And what I guess the really sad part of this story is he basically ignored the red flags and he then he recruited his friends and family into this scheme as well. Um, he thought it was like a sure thing. And basically it got to the point where this person on Instagram who we'd never met before um, had about $20,000, like they sent $20,000 worth of Bitcoins to them. That's um, one of his friends actually. The guy I spoke to, one of his friends had sold his car for 10000 and then put that ten grand into this scheme. And then when, yeah, when there was twenty grand there, they just disappeared. This account was deleted. It's all done in Bitcoin. There's no like chargeback you can get for credit cards and stuff. Um, you know, they went to the police. There's nothing they can really do. And yeah, that's gone. And, and for that, that guy, I guess what's most upsetting for him is the money, I guess, it can be recovered, but he's lost friends and some people just don't talk to him again. Um, and, you know, his family, you know, he's had family members who lost a lot of money, like, and he's just lost all trust mm. um, from those people. And I feel, I felt really, you know, it's really sad for him. But at the same time, it's like, you know, I guess there's a thing there which is around if something does seem a bit too good to be true, you need to be particularly cautious. And it's not just like Instagram, it's not just crypto. There's a lot of variations on this, that kind of theme where someone promises you huge returns, you know, I ask you to hand over money and then suddenly they disappear or it becomes like a Ponzi type scheme, which is in this case basically what it was. Mm. I think that's a good general rule. Just avoid anyone who guarantees anything. (laughs) Yeah. But again, like... in finance. Yeah. And I guess that's, I guess, something I would say to your listeners as well is like think about that kind of... compound interest as well like i guess if you think about that situation through this person's promising 50 percent returns a year uh, a month sorry um you know i don't even know what that is annualized but it's something crazy um and you know why would someone who is making that much money and has an investment scheme that's that's valuable why would they be just letting people kind of jump in on that as well so but you know I think people are always going to fall for those. And some people are very convincing. This person obviously was as well. So, Yeah, and I know the, the government's always posting on Scam Watch about the number of people and the just the sheer range of different ways that people in Australia uh, get scammed. And you, you always think, oh, that would never happen to me. But I've known friends and family that I think would be very smart people, objectively, falling for various scams of different things, even... One was um, a Netflix scam. They didn't even have a Netflix subscription, but it said like you've got to re, like re put in your credit card details. They got an email, and for some reason they did it, and uh, I think they lost about a thousand, but they ended up being able to get it back. Luckily through their credit card. But I guess when it's Bitcoin, it's a lot harder to um, trace any of this stuff. And that's the reason why it's they use it as well. So um, you know, yeah, I guess that's one of the advantages of. The decentralized currency, right? So, yeah, but like I say, I don't think this is about a crypto thing. Like, obviously, you can do crypto without the scam component, but 
just be careful is what I would say. Like, and, you know, if something does sound too good to be true, like it probably is. Like, you know, otherwise, it, people just, money doesn't fall off trees, right? Yeah, I often recommend actually just if you want to common sense these things, actually going and looking, what did the stock market do over the last 100 years? At any point, did it keep going up at 50% per month? Is that realistic? And so you can kind of look at historical returns to maybe even fact check or common sense. Is this in the realm of possibility? Hey, maybe it's not. Because they usually, these scams often will promise something way beyond 20% per annum, like 50% per month quite insane but sometimes it's more like 20 or 30 percent per annum i see a lot of those property scams where they have property seminars and things this is not specific to crypto it happens in property it happens north or south of the queensland border it uh, involves shares it can involve anything so um, it's just i think financial literacy plays a huge part and i don't think i would like to think that most people or everyone listening to this podcast can tell the difference and we've been over a lot in the mm. last three years to try and warn people off them. Yeah. And so looking back a bit over your journey, writing a lot of financial and money stories, how have you seen the investing journey for new investors change over the last few years? Because there was a huge influx of new investors in Australia last year. And are there some more things that new investors you wish they knew before starting? I think that's another really, really good question. So I was just talking to you guys before we went on air about my own journey with investing and I can kind of talk about that. So when I started, it's probably about 25 and when I first started having some money from you know, a full-time job, that was when I was like, okay, well, what do I do with my money? And so it's interesting just how much like it, when I started out, there was not a lot of podcasts around, like a lot of the financial kind of media was very kind of aimed at older people, people who had huge amounts of money. I didn't really feel like it related to me or my circumstances. And it didn't really answer the kind of questions I had as well, which was like about, for instance, like when I was starting like a stock brokerage account, I was like, is there any risk here? Like if it goes broke or like all those questions that people might have when they're starting out. So what I think has happened since then is that there's a lot more, you know, there's a lot of great podcasts like your own. There's a lot of um, people kind of, you know, writing that or talking about some of those issues from that perspective of beginners or people who are starting out investing. I think that's a really good thing from a kind of financial literacy point of view. I think if people can be informed and, and feel empowered to make choices, that's really good. I guess the other part of it is, and like you mentioned, there's been a huge influx of um, people into the share market in the last year or so. We've had like a lot of, uh, you know, the market, stock market has been doing really well for a really long time. And I think, I hope that a lot of people who are getting started in stocks kind of have that perspective that it's a long-term investment. It's not something that's, you know, you do over, you know, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme, right? <laughs> it's not offering 50% returns a month, no. unfortunately. But there's inevitably going to be drawdowns. and There's going to be times where people, you know, you know, the market falls. Like, and we had a bit, bit of that mar- last March. So... But that's the reality of the kind of investing as well. And so I guess if you're starting out, and like one thing I, that took me a while to kind of get my head around was de- having that kind of emotional ability to kind of deal with some of those things and having that long-term kind of approach. And that's something that, you know, for me, that's something I've learned personally. But again, I think there is a lot more information out there for young people. But the articles and podcasts and videos can't kind of 
tell you how it will feel when you're looking at a red numbers on a brokerage account, right? You have to kind of do it yourself as well. So that's the thing I would say as well is that you have to at some point do it yourself to really learn. It's great to read about it and, and things like that. But if you yeah, want to start investing, I think the best thing to do is to try to start and start small as well. Like that's a really good way to develop some of that emotional part. I understand those emotional swings is you can do that with a smaller portfolio and never invest really more than you feel um, that's going to make you feel, I guess, uncomfortable if there's going to be a loss there because that's like I, I think there's a good chance it'll happen at some stage. I think um, that that emotional angle is not just necessarily specific to investing either, right? Like we were talking before about it's not just investors um, and people getting started investing. It actually goes further back, um, I guess, in terms of complexity. It's right back to getting out of debt, paying off credit card. Those types of things are really emotional, but they're also really popular things. From your time kind of being at the coalface and writing about these things, do you find that those stories that you write are also very popular? Not So not just like the investing, things gone wrong, but also just like here's strategies to get out of debt or you know, consumer products and whatever. Yeah, and that's certainly something we've found. Like, I guess we're trying to reach a broad audience, people in all different types of situations, and we're not really looking at just people who are, you know, investing or well-off or things like that. So I guess one, we have noticed that a lot of people really relate to those stories around debt and particularly around consumer debts, credit cards, things like that. Um, we did a story about... Um, Natasha Torza, I don't know if you guys know her. She's on yeah. Instagram. It's Tasha Gets Frugal. I'll give one plug yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> um, I really think Tasha's got a really great story. So she's actually a single mum now. So she's got a young boy. But she was 20 grand in credit card debt and, you know, had that basically realised at some point that she's going to have to figure out what to do with it and she managed to pay it off. You know, so a lot of really hard work and sacrifices. And also she had a bit of luck along the way. It's like that's the other part of that story as well. So, and we had a lot of people, you know, you know, read that story and kind of really related to it. And, yeah, I think a lot of people aren't even at that stage where necessarily they're thinking about what do I do um, for the future. They're thinking about what does security look like for me? How do I pay my bills and, my, and you know, how do I pay the rent? What do I do about, you know, all the fees and things I have to pay. Like some of the s- stories we do is we've talked to financial counsellors. I know you guys have had them on the show as well. And they basically deal with people who are in financial distress, people who can't pay, have more money kind of going out than coming in. And they tell stories about people who, you know, it's a really common thing where people basically just get the bills in the mail and don't open them. So they just pile up. They don't want to think about it. And I can really understand, like, you can really understand that if you've got a lot of stress going on in your life and, you know, um, I, I can see those stories are really kind of heartbreaking to me as well. But I guess one thing that I have, one of the great things I get to do as a reporter is talk to some people who have kind of been in those moments, like mm-hmm. Tasha, who've had those low moments and also the people and how they got out of it, right? So, and if you talk to the financial counsellors as well, you can hear some really in- inspiring stories as well. So, and I guess, yeah, one thing I would say too is that there is help available. And, yeah, people like the financial counsellors, that's a free service and they do some really good work with people who, you know, are struggling and dealing with some of those issues around debts and things like that. 
And I think sharing those stories is so important because we might love to talk about how much money we made on a a stock on our Facebook account, or we might like to talk about cryptocurrency on Twitter, but most people don't share their stories of either being in debt or getting out of debt. So you can feel really alone in those scenarios. And I think that's, it's really good that you're able to talk to those people and share those stories because if someone's never spoken about the debt they're in before, that might be the only time they actually feel like they're not alone with it. Mm, yeah. I uh, That's, for me, they're some of the most enjoyable stories I write. Like I get the most out of that. And, um, you know, I think they're probably the people that need that, you know, financial education the most or some of that, some of those tips and things that we try to do. And, you know, and sometimes it's more than just like budgeting as well. And and there's a lot of other things going on in people's lives. And so, yeah, it's sometimes it's, it's more than, it's not, there's not just a quick fix sometimes as well. Yeah. Just telling someone not to buy their morning coffee is not going to solve the world's problems. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I've got one more question, but I might leave that one for the end. Yeah. So, oh, and I also, because we've spoken in the past, I know you're a big fan of um, personal finance and investing yourself personally. Um, I wanted to know if you had any of your favorite personal finance books or investing resources that you wanted to share with our audience. Sure. Well, in terms of resources, I guess one thing that I found really, I really enjoy is like Mr. Money Mustache. You guys probably know. Uh, yeah. Yep. yep. Pete in the US. <laughs> yeah. And, you can actually go back like on his website and so like 400 and something. He doesn't post as much now as mm. he used to. But what I would suggest you do is like go back to the start and read it. I had it all on my Kindle. Like I downloaded it. Oh, like a book. Yeah, basically <laughs> a book of it. And there's so much good advice in there for people. And also I like the fact like he, he's like a very frugal person obviously but it, he – he talks about he also he's also cares about the environment and that's something I can relate to as well. It's like I think one of the things is around consumption for me as well as like I try to save money and one of the driving things for that for me as well is that I like I don't like the idea of consuming more things mm. like the environmental impacts of some of that stuff. So some people yeah talk about it as like an environmental blog in disguise is like <laughs> what he does, but it's really good and also it's written in a really engaging way. Like it's not. I think I said this before, but a lot of the financial stuff might be male, pale and stale, sort of <laughs> thing they say. But it can be a bit boring or it can be a bit kind of jargony. Or, mm. And one of the things about Mr. Money Mustache is he writes in a really engaging way. I'll just give, put one caveat on that. Like Mr. Money Mustache is like an extreme version. He's like the gold medal athlete of like <laughs> personal finances probably. So don't use, I wouldn't say use him as a like a yardstick for like your own kind of mm. lifestyle, but I guess you can still pick up some of those lessons. He, learn a lot from the way he approaches those things. Um, I think, yeah, there's a lot of lessons in there for everyone, particularly about cars. Like that's probably the number one personal finance tip is like cars can be like very bad for personal finances, particularly if you're, you know, if you're taking out a loan to buy one. So that's one, that's one of his big bugbears as well. So Yeah, don't get us started on that. Yeah, it's that idea, I guess, reduce, re- reuse and recycle. Yeah. If you follow that mantra, then you're probably going to live a more frugal lifestyle and save money anyhow. So it's kind of like a byproduct. Yeah, I think I'm a wired a bit differently to like a lot of people in that. Like I'm naturally like this. It's like my personality. And same with like Mr. Money Mustache. Like he obviously is just, he enjoys that. Like he doesn't want to spend more money or, do, you know, doesn't have desire consumer products really. So, but a lot of people aren't like that. And that's what I was trying to say is like, you know, 
you don't have to be that extreme. Some people might even say he's like almost a bit like a monk, like what how he lives his life. Um, but you have to find what works for you, right? And there's no like what works for me is not going to be what works for someone else. So I was going to say as well a couple of books um, that I really like. One is The Snowball, which is obviously about Warren Buffett. Mm. Is that that really huge book? It's really big, <laughs> yeah. But it's actually really, there's so much in there as well. And one of the things I like about that book is obviously a lot of people in the finance world are really obsessed with Warren Buffett and, you know, value investing and things like that. Um, and there's a lot to kind of admire, I guess. But at the same time, like I think Alice Schroeder, who wrote that book, it's not like a hagiography or it's not like a, a glowing kind of, you know, portrait of, of Buffett. Like he's a really flawed human being. And I think there's a few lessons in there. One is that like I would never try to model my life on Warren Buffett. I think he's kind of, despite all the money he has, he's got, you know, there's some real, you know, for instance, like he's had some issues with his relationships and, yeah, he, I don't know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to try to emulate that stuff. But at the same time, there's so much from an investing point of view or if you're interested in finance, like there's no better like, some of those stories, I guess, you know, get told and retold. But that's, you know, probably the definitive source, I would say, about, about Buffett. So. Yeah, great. Okay, then if you could leave our audience with one thing, like one thing you want to say, whether it's on money or investing, you know, reading, writing, whatever it might be, what would it be? It's a tricky one. Uh, <laughs> so I might just go back to what I said before, which is that, I think when it comes to personal finances, you have to kind of find your own kind of equilibrium or find what works for you. And I think there's a lot of people out in the world that might try to offer you a solution to all your problems. And a lot of people might also think that, you know, having more money will solve, will make them a happy person or solve all the problems in their life. I don't necessarily think that's true. And like if we go back to that Warren Buffett biography, I think even though he had all this money, there's probably things he wanted that he couldn't have as well. So money doesn't buy happiness. So I guess what I would say is that it's really useful to have some savings. It's really useful to kind of spend less than you earn if you can, if you're in a position to do that. But also like don't fall into the trap of trying to compare yourselves with someone else. Like I think that's a really... It's not a recipe for a happy life, I think, as well. So try to find what works for you and, you know, try to just plot along and, like, it's a long-term thing, right, investing life and, um, you know, just approach it like a a long-term uh, marathon, not a sprint, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Uh, what is it? Lust is the only one of the seven deadly sins. Oh, envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins that you won't get any enjoyment from. So you can just avoid that one. I think that's uh, good advice, mate. And if people like the sound of you on this podcast and, and want to read more about um, what you're doing, where can they go? Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter. So my handle is Pat A. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Um, we also, our website is ABC Everyday. So abc.net.au slash everyday. And if you click on the money section, you'll see a lot of our money stories. Hey, you've cool. pretty much got a money piece on there every day, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> a few times a week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm, very busy, man. Well, thanks for taking the time out to join Kate now on the show, mate. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit Get Started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest, and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no-obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.